I pray that you would cause the very fact that you are God to sink deep within us. And all that that means and all that you bring to bear in the context of our own hearts that we would acknowledge that you are God. I pray, therefore, that you would grant to us a great desire to know you and to follow you. And in that, that you would open our eyes and we might see that which is true about you in the word of God, that you would open our minds and open our hearts and open even our affections, that we might understand you, that we might embrace you, that we might love everything that's true about you. And I pray that you would do that even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to 1 Peter and uh, chapter 1. 1 Peter and chapter 1. I want to read verses 13 through 16. 1 Peter and chapter 1. Hear the word of God. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, I'm going to be speaking this morning on that expression that we're to be holy because God is holy. I won't have an opportunity to exhaust the subject, obviously. So if you're looking for some summer reading, let me just give you a bit of a list. Uh, First uh, is a book by a man named J.C. Ryle, and it's aptly titled Holiness. It was written in 1879, I believe, or at least published then, um, during the course of his life. And you should always pay attention to a book that's that old and still being published. So a book called Holiness. It's a series of sermons, really. But uh, you'll find none better. Secondly, uh, is a book uh, Clay told me that uh, it may have been reissued under a different title. So if you get on to Signs of Life, ask him for this book. He'll know uh, if he has it. It's a book by J.I. Packer called Rediscovering Holiness. Uh, it's a wonderful rewrite of Ryle's book called Holiness uh, in more modern language, a little bit better outline and so forth, more bookish kind of form. So Rediscovering Holiness by J.I. Packer. Thirdly, uh, is a book that you probably uh, have, I trust, since he's been here so often and we sell his books and so forth with such joy. Uh, a book uh, by Jerry Bridges called The Pursuit of Holiness, which is really a great classic. Um, and then secondly, some of you read during a Sunday school class last semester one of Jerry's books entitled The Discipline of Grace. That would be helpful as well. So any of those, if you're looking for something to read uh, this summer, will be a great blessing to you in the context of, of holiness. And they're all accessible. You can read them. They're not sort of high academic sorts of things. You can read them with, uh, with great uh, profit. And I'm doing this because I, I, I raised the question a couple of weeks ago before I was interrupted by a wedding. Uh, not rudely interrupted, but gladly interrupted, but interrupted nonetheless. Um, uh, I raised the question two weeks ago, and which was this. How is it that we're to respond to this great salvation? How is it that we're to respond to this great salvation? And I raised that question because I think that's the question that Peter is implicitly answering as, he, as we're working through these uh, first opening verses in, uh, in this letter. You might remember in verses 1 through 12, uh, Peter lays out this great salvation. We realize that we've been saved by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that this salvation... Uh, 
elected by the Father, chosen by Him, sanctified, set apart by the Holy Spirit to the obedience of Christ, sprinkled with His blood, all of that from the first verse. But also that this great salvation has a pastness, a presentness, and a futureness to it. Uh, the pastness is that we have been chosen by God and He has caused us to be born again into this living hope. The pastness of it. that It's something that God has done in us. Uh, presently, we have the experience of this living hope that's assured because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And also, during this time, the presentness of it, we're experiencing various trials. And these various trials are testing and proving our faith to be genuine. Uh, and so even in the context of the present, as we go through difficulties, we're obtaining the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls, the presentness of our salvation this time of testing and purifying and proving our faith to be genuine. And finally, there's a future aspect of this salvation as well, because we have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, that's being guarded by God's power through faith ready to be revealed at the last time, this, this culmination, this completion of this great salvation that's coming. So there's a pastness, presentness, and a future to this salvation as well. And we said that, that, that as Peter was writing, he's giving us these as statements of fact, things which are true about this group of people, things which are true of Christians. And then he moves on to verses 13, 14, 15, and 16. And there we find two primary commands. So he's moved, as we said, you know, a little grammar lecture. He, we move from the indicative to the imperative. Statements of fact to that of command. And he gives two commands primarily in verses 13 through 16. One which we've considered, which is to set your hope fully on the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, this is the great salvation. So the first command is simply this, to trust in it, to hope in it for that to be your heart's desire for this great grace that is coming the culmination of all that you've experienced in certain measure it comes in its completion so set your hope completely on that and then the second commandment which we'll um, deal with today and that is be holy be holy now let me make before I begin two sort of general observations one is uh, one we made two weeks ago one I'll make new today the one we made a couple of weeks ago, the observation we made a couple of weeks ago, that's very important. Because if we miss this, we get Christianity all wrong. And that is this whole notion of these moods, of these verbs. That the indicative, statements of fact, that which is true about us, always comes before the imperative, the command. If you get those backwards, then you'll try to become a Christian by obeying. And you'll be doomed. You become a Christian by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and by faith, trusting. Not by doing anything, not by obeying. You don't merit it. So if you get those backwards, you're doomed. Christianity will not be true in the context of your life. We don't become a Christian by showing God that we can do it. We become a Christian because we can't do it. But then... He says, now that you've become, now that you are, here's how I want you to live. That's where the command comes in. Don't get those confused. If you do, you'll miss First Peter. Worse than that, you'll miss the faith uh, utterly and incompletely. Second observation, and that is, of these two commands, the second command flows, follows logically from the first. 
The second command flows, follows logically from the first. By that I mean this. The first command is that we're to set our hope fully on the grace that's to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, that's where your hope is. That's where your desire is. That's what you want. Well, the grace that's going to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus is the grace, this inheritance, that will cause everything to reflect Christ. When he returns, everything in the experience of believers will reflect Christ. Everybody you see will be conformed to the image of Christ. You yourself will be conformed to the image of Christ. Everything will be just as he likes it, that which reflects him. You see, that's the goal, that's the destiny of our faith. We've been predestined, Romans 8.29 says, to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's our destiny, that's where we're going. And so, when we set our hope fully on that grace, what Peter is saying is, I want you to set your desires, that which you desire above all else, to be like Jesus. Now, if that really is your heart's desire, if that's really your hope, he goes on to say, then be holy. Because you see, if that's really your hope, what you're implicitly saying is that you realize sin will do you no good. Sin is not your friend. No matter how it feels, no matter the pleasure that you may think you're getting from it, the truth of the matter is it can't satisfy, it won't satisfy. And when you set your hope fully on the grace that's to be given to you, being conformed to the image of Christ, you're saying, I know that sin is my enemy. Sin is out to get me. Sin is out to destroy me. And so Peter says, yes, that's right. Set your hope on being conformed to the image of Christ. Now what? Be holy. If that's what you really desire. This is the same logic John uses, for instance, in 1 John in chapter 3 and verse 1. The Apostle John writes this. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. You see, John's in the same sort of wavelength as Peter. Peter started out in verse 14 saying, As obedient children. So he's talking to people who trust in Christ, whose Father is God, and they are his children. To see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, the He there is Jesus of course, but we know that when He appears we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. John is saying, listen, when He returns... The revelation of Jesus Christ. When he returns, here's what's going to happen. You're going to look at Jesus and be transformed. You're going to look at Jesus and be conformed to his image. You're going to look at Jesus and you're going to be like him. Set your hope on that. If that's really your hope, John goes on to say then, verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That is, if that's really your hope, if that's really what you want, if that's really your aspiration, if that's really the desire of your heart to be conformed to the image of Christ, then get on with it. Don't just put up your feet and wait. You get on with it now. Yes, it's going to happen. That's your destiny, but get on with it now. It's sort of like this. If you met a little 10-year-old boy and you said, what's the desire of your heart? He said, I want to be a baseball player. What would you expect him to be doing this summer? Playing baseball. Or if you met a kid, what do you want to be? I want to be a singer. What would you expect that kid to be doing? Singing. 
If you met a person, you said, what do you want to be? I want to be an artist. What would you expect that person to be, be, be doing? Art. If that's really the desire of their heart. And so, John and Peter are saying, listen, if you want to be conformed to the image of Christ, if that's what you know will satisfy you, then get on with it. Be holy. Purify yourself as he is pure. Now, let me stretch that illustration so you don't get discouraged. Because if you're tracking with me, what you're thinking now is, whoa, I really know I'm going to be conformed to the image of Christ. And I really know that that's my desire. If you gave me a multiple choice test, I would say sin is bad. It's not my friend. But yet, I don't think I'm getting on with the holiness part like this seems like I should be getting on with this holiness part. And that's, I think I was reminded this week from my family, that's true of me. Um, and I suspect it's true of you as well. And it's probably true of that little boy who wants to be a baseball player because there's some other things that probably need to be overcome in his life before he gets on with the baseball thing. And it might just be laziness. He might not yet be completely convinced that he really does need to practice. But see, that's happening. That's working in him. And as long as his hope is set, and that's his heart's desire, then we'll see improvement. And in us as well. Now, what is this this holiness? Holiness generically means... I'm smiling because this is a rather dense next ten minutes, so hang in there with me. I love to do this to you. At least it's not 8.15 or 8.45. The first service people really just... But they got it. They listened. They they did. Now, holiness generically means to be set apart, to be separated from. So in one sense, if you want to holify something, if you want to make it holy, just in a generic sense, you're you're taking it apart, you're separating it apart from its common use. But but the twist to holiness here is that it's separating separating out from the common to devote it entirely to God. That's really this sense of holiness. So for instance, in the Old Testament we read that the Sabbath was to be holy. So it was to be set apart from all the other days of the week. There were seven days, you take this one day and make it different. Not just simply different in the sense that you didn't do the, the things that you normally did in, weeks, in, in days one through six. But on the seventh day, you dedicated it completely, devoted it completely to God. That made it holy. Thus there were pre- people who would be called holy in that, in that context. The priests, they would be set apart from all the other people and their lives devoted entirely to God. They had no other pursuits. Um, there would be things that would be holy. There would be the holy place, the most holy place in the temple. These would be places, areas uh, that would be set aside simply, strictly devoted to God in this religious, if you will, sense. And so we speak of the holiness of God. We, I'm sorry, when we speak of holiness, it's being separated out devoted to God. Now when we talk about the holiness of God, we're talking about God being different than any other being, separated out, different than any other being, and that's certainly certainly true. He's, he's God, that's why we say that his name is holy, because his name is I am, which simply just means he's utterly and completely self-existent. He's utterly and completely self-dependent. God depends on no one, nothing else, for his existent, existence. He simply is. You see, I am only if he is. Because if he isn't, I'm toast. See, I am utterly dependent upon someone giving me breath. I'm utterly dependent upon someone keeping this whole thing going. You see. But he isn't. 
All of this could vanish and God still is. You see, when he says I am, he means I'm self-existent, I'm self-determining. I depend on no one, nothing else for my existence. That makes him different. Set apart. He's. But when we think about God being set apart like that, it isn't just being different, but he's set apart for himself. That he's utterly devoted to who he is. He's utterly devoted to God. So that everything that he does and everything that he thinks and all of his wisdom and everything is holy because it's fully devoted to himself and he's God. In fact, we can use this little word holy as, as, as kind of a modifier to all the other attributes of God. His justice is holy. Yes, it's different than anybody else's, but it's also perfectly pure and right and good. Never is there any impure anything in God's justice. When, God is, when God's justice comes down, it's exactly right and exactly pure. God's wisdom is holy. He knows and does all that which is good. He always thinks rightly. He never thinks wrongly. He never has an impure thought or an impure action. He's always holy in his being. His power is always holy. Whatever he does is always right. It's never impure. There's never a wrong motive. There's never a wrong action. It's always holy. His love is always holy. So we see the holiness of God manifested in his law. Perfect love. Perfect devotion to God. We see uh, God's holiness manifested in judgment. You know, sometimes we read through the Old Testament, we kind of cringe and we go, God, you have to annihilate them? I thought you annihilated them the last chapter. You know, there's all this judgment going on. And why does that trouble us? It only troubles us because we don't get the holiness of God. Because if we got the holiness of God, we would understand that this is a right and good reaction of God against sin. The holiness of God. We obviously see the holiness of God manifested in the Lord Jesus. He's different. He's set apart. He's special. He's utterly devoted to his Father. He said, everything I see, everything I do, I've seen the Father do. Everything I say, I've heard the Father say. I live to do his will. He loved his father perfectly. He loved people perfectly. Everything about Jesus was, was, was pure, was holy. He loved with a holy love. Even his hate was holy. That is, what he hated was evil and thus should be hated. And he hated it perfectly. And he loved perfectly. And of course we see the holiness of God in the cross of Christ because there we see the judgment of God against sin. And there we see the very holy love of God as well. So all of that we see manifested in the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> now, the human response to the holiness of God, I read as our call to worship. Think, what was my call to worship? You don't have to tell me, just think. It's from Isaiah 6. It was a scene where Isaiah sees the holiness of God. He sees God high and lifted up. He sees him in all of his purity. And you remember Isaiah's response was when he saw God's purity and holiness, he saw his own impurity and his own unholiness and he felt as if he was going to blow up. He could not stand in the very presence of God. So the question now is, how is it 
that we, that, that we can be commanded to be holy. I mean, he was Isaiah. I, I think on a human scale, Isaiah probably beats me in holiness. I don't know Isaiah that well, but, but I know me. And so I would probably rank him somewhere ahead of me in the whole context of holiness. And so he was about to blow up in the presence of this holy God. So how then could a command for him to be holy make any sense at all? How is it that Peter could command us to be holy? And it have any meaning at all? Is this a sort of pie in the sky stuff? Well, well, no, I don't think so. Because there's two aspects to holiness. One of which I believe Peter assumes is true about them. And the other he's commanding them to do. Okay? Two aspects of holiness. One, Peter's assuming is true about them. The other he's asking, really commanding them, us, to do. The, the, the first sense of holiness that I believe Peter's assuming about them is what we call positional holiness. How can anyone stand in the presence of God? How can any human being stand in the presence of God? How can any of us stand in the presence of holiness? Isaiah couldn't. The only way we can stand is if we're made holy, we're given the very holiness of Christ. And that's what is true of us. For instance, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1, <clears throat> as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he writes to them as if they are holy. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, he writes, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He's saying to these people that they've already been past tense, sanctified in Christ Jesus and that they already are saints. Now that little word sanctified and that little word saint comes from this same word to be to, to mean holy. Sanctified, again, if we're going to use an ugly word for it, would be holified. Okay? He says all of you who are holified, that is, you're holy before the Lord. Separated out, fully devoted to Him. He even calls them saints. That is, holy ones. No special category of Christian, but every Christian. Holy before God. On the basis of what? On the basis of the holiness of Christ. When we pray in Jesus' name, what we're praying is, you know, I'm standing before you, God. I'm coming to you not on the basis of my own goodness, my own righteousness, my own merit, what I've done, but I'm coming to you in the the holy name of Jesus. His holiness. That I might stand in your presence, that I might come before you. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, the Apostle writes, He, that is Jesus, is the source, I'm sorry, the Father, He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is, Christ is our holiness. And so we stand in Him. So Peter's not commanding that. The only way that can come about is if we're cleansed, as Isaiah was cleansed by that coal that came to his lips only can we stand in the presence of God if we're cleansed by the blood of Christ we receive his holiness but then there's what we call a progressive holiness that is a growth in holiness you've been declared by God holy that you may stand in his presence because of Christ But now he says, I want you to be holy. I want you to live this out. I want you to grow in this. I want you to mature in this. Because you see, this is the very goal of our faith. 
to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's our destiny. In fact, if you read through Ephesians in chapter 2, great passage, first 10 verses, great passage on our salvation. Verses 1 through 9, talk about the fact that we were dead in trespasses and sins. All of us, by nature, under the wrath of God. But then it goes on to say, but God who is rich in mercy made us alive again in Christ Jesus even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. By grace you've been saved and this through faith. You know this passage. So that none of us can boast. But then verse 10, at the end of all that, he says, for, that is, because all this is true, for you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, that's the goal of it. That we might get on with it. Because you see, in this pastness of our salvation, our guilt is dealt with. The guilt of sin. The futureness of our salvation. The very presence of sin is dealt with. In the presentness of our salvation, the power of sin is dealt with as we live holy lives, as we follow hard after Christ. Now, very practically speaking then, what is this uh, holiness? I wish I had time, and I don't, even though in the summer I feel like I could preach forever. I just like summer. Um, you haven't been to Sunday school, you know, you've just been here a little while, Seems such a waste to just keep you here for an hour and 15 minutes. Um, I love the nervous laugh when I say things like that. It's sort of like, oh, what's he going to do? Um, but I wish I had time, I don't, to read about five pages out of J.C. Ryle's book on holiness. Because he lists 12 attributes of a holy person. So if you have an opportunity, Clay's not here, go down to Signs of Life, you can just pull out the shelf and read it. I forget which pages. It's in the chapter on holiness. It's called holiness. But Twelve things, although he lists them A through whatever the twelfth letter of the alphabet is. Then you'll be hooked and you'll buy the book. But um, twelve attributes. So let me just read you just very quickly my summary of that. First attribute, he said, Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God. It's the habit of agreeing with God's judgment, hating what he hates and loving what he loves. Measuring everything in the world by the standard of his word. Holiness is being God-minded. To think God's thoughts after him and to evaluate all of life as he would evaluate all of life. Number two. A holy man will endeavor to shun every known sin and keep every known commandment. He will have a hearty desire to please God. In fact, he will have a greater fear of displeasing God than, fearing the, than, than, than displeasing the world. He will be like David who said, because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. That's a holy person. He separated himself from wickedness and devoted himself to purity. Number three, a holy man will strive to be like Jesus. It will be his aim to forgive others, to be unselfish, to walk in love, to be lowly minded and humble. Number four, a holy man will follow after meekness long-suffering, gentleness, patience, kindness. He'd be slow to talk of standing on his own rights, which is a 19th century way of saying he won't be a whiner. Number five, holy people are not self-indulgent, but rather follow after temperance 
and self-denial. Number six, holy people are full of love. Thus he will abhor all lying, slandering, backbiting, cheating, dishonesty, and unfair dealing. He'll abhor hurting people in any way. Number seven, a holy man will follow after a spirit of mercy and benevolence towards others, like Dorcas in the book of Acts. He will be one who is full of good works and deeds, as she did. That, that is, it isn't just talk, but love in action. Number eight, a holy man will seek purity of heart. He will dread all filthiness and uncleanness of spirit and seek to avoid all things that might draw him into it. He will keep his heart free of temptation that is so desirous to be holy is that he will flee opportunities where he might be tempted. Number nine, a holy man will follow after the fear of God. Not the fear of a slave who does what he does because he fears punishment, but the fear of a son who desires to honor his father because he loves him. Number ten, a holy man will follow after humility, esteeming others better than himself. Number eleven, A holy man will follow after faithfulness in all his duties and relations in life, in being good husbands and wives, good parents, good neighbors, good friends, good places of business. Number 12. A holy man will be spiritually minded, attempting to set his affections on things above, not on earthly things. It will be a person whose mind and heart is set upon God. A mind and heart is set upon Christ. A mind and heart that desires to please him above all else. Who understands his life to be set apart and utterly and completely devoted to God. John Owen, who is probably the chief of all the old dead guys. In fact, if you want one more book to add to your summer reading list, um, there's a book, I believe the modern title is Sin and Temptation. But it's John Owen's old work that was entitled The Mortification of Sin. Better title. Scarier title, isn't it? Scarier title. But John Owen said this about his own life. He says, My heart's desire unto God and the chief design of my life are that universal holiness may be promoted in my own and in the hearts and ways of others. He said this. He says, My heart's desire unto God and the chief design of my life. This is it. This is what, this is what moves me. This is what motivates me. This is what I think about. This is the goal of my life, he says. Is this. That, a universe, that universal holiness may be promoted in my own life. That I may be a holy man. He said, that's what, that's what captivates my mind. How can I be holy? But not only that, he says. I want all those around me to be holy as well. Not only through my teaching, but my witness. By being around them, I I want them to grow in holiness as well. So here's a man who concentrates his attention on being fair-minded, who concentrates his attention on being humble, esteeming others better than himself. Here's a man who concentrates his his, his mind on self-denial. How can I give up so that others may have? Here's a person who sees himself... And he's, he was brilliant. But he's a person who says, how can I serve and be lowly so that you may be better off? How can I forgive when I'm hurt? And then, how can I do that in such a way that other people too are motivated to live their lives in a way that promotes holiness, that, that serves Christ, that is devoted, that is devoted to him? And I, 
you know, I had to ask myself that question. Is that what captivates my mind and my own heart? Is that the desire of my life? When I'm sitting at home watching a baseball game or flipping stations or reading a book or sitting there, am I thinking, how can I be a holy husband here? How can I deny myself and serve? How can I forgive? How can I love in this context here? And so we need to ask ourselves, husbands, how can I be a holy husband? The wife's going, yeah. <laughs> how can you be a holy wife? What's that mean? To be devoted to following Christ and being like Him in the context of your own life, your own heart. How can I be a holy parent? How can I be a holy employee? How can I be a holy student? How can I be holy? Devoted to God as He is holy. So what hope is there? I mean, again, I have to ask that question because when I look in the context of my own life, I have to ask that question. What what hope do I have that this could be true in my life? What hope do I have that this isn't just a burden that's being placed upon me? What hope do I have? And you know me, and you know the Word of God well enough to know there's great hope. There's great hope that this can be true of us because this is our calling. Peter says... As he who called you is holy. See, this is our calling. This is our purpose. He says your destiny is to be conformed to the image of Christ. He calls us and we know that God's call is effectual. That is, God's, when he calls, he brings all the wherewithal with that call to enable us. Remember when Lazarus was dead for four days. King James Version said he stinketh. It was that long. The call of Jesus, of his name Lazarus, brought life. And you know, as well as I do, if you're a Christian, that your being born again was the result of God's calling. And his calling came and was effective in your life to bring new life. And so when he says we are called to be holy, as he is holy, the one who calls us is holy, then we must believe that he brings to us the wherewithal for that to take place. That we can progress in this holiness. And so that is our hope. And you know that this calling uh, results in us being born again. This calling results in us being children of God. And that's a wonderful expression because children are to resemble their parents. I hate to tell you young people, but a day will come when you will look in the mirror and go, Oh my goodness, that's my dad. You see? Now, I don't think the women will do that as much. But you'll say, oh, that's my mom. And there you are. You, oh, it's amazing. It's scary. But it's amazing. You, you resemble. And so when Peter says that we're obedient children, he says that's, that's a good word. Saying because this call is effectual because you'll resemble your heavenly father as his child. You'll resemble your brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's rather blunt. But when Peter says your former ignorance, he's using a phrase that uh, sort of technical. He's saying that there was a time when you lived in ignorance. And this ignorance is, doesn't mean that you weren't smart. It doesn't mean that you didn't have a high IQ. It didn't mean that you didn't make straight A's or a high score on your ACT or any of that. It had nothing to do with that, that kind of ignorance. But he said you were ignorant of who God really was and who God really is. 
and you lived as if he didn't exist. You lived as if he really wasn't God. It would sort of be like this if you're an employee and you're standing by the water cooler one day and your boss comes up and says, get back to work, and you don't. And then you, I didn't know his boss. The old, I don't know it was my boss trick. <laughs> that isn't the ignorance that Peter's talking about. Peter's saying that you lived in a former ignorance that was due to the hardness of your heart. Sort of like this. Your boss comes up to you and says, at the water cooler, get back to work, you know it's your boss, and you say, no. Because I know better than you. My passion, my desire isn't to work, but to stand here. Now, that, your fellow employees would say, is ignorant. Because you need to know who your boss is and need to honor him as such. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in a similar way in Romans in chapter 1, for instance. In verse 18, well, let me just, yeah. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. He said, listen, they knew it, but they didn't honor God as God. And he's saying to each one of us, before you became a Christian, you lived in that ignorance. But the encouraging word is the word former ignorance. You don't live there anymore. That's not true of you anymore. You know now God. And you know the value of His holiness. And it's beginning to sink in. Oh, it isn't arrived yet. But it's beginning to sink in. Oh yes, sin is bad. Holiness is good. And there's this great pool of sin upon us because because it's it's provided pleasure at least we thought in the past it's it satisfied us in various ways in the past and now this change is taking place because now we know at least in our mind and somewhere in our hearts that real satisfaction comes by following after Christ sin is out to destroy us God is out to bless us and so we need to turn from that and follow him the scripture says but there's, there's still this pull and we think but, but my anger has served me so well in the past when I lost my temper I got what I wanted he said, no, that's not right. That's not holiness. That won't satisfy. But it feels like it satisfies, but it doesn't. So by faith, we turn that aside. And you say, but, 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 but the sexual immorality that I've been involved in seems so satisfying in the context of my life. He said, no, 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 no. That's not really what satisfies. Sexual purity is what satisfies. Oh, yeah. So each one of these things, lying, you say, but, but, but my lies have served me well, it's gotten me out of a lot of trouble. Better to be in trouble than to be satisfied by a lie, he said, live holiness. And so increasingly, you see, he says, this is your former ignorance. Now, how do we bring this about? How is it that we walk this way? Well, let me give you a short list. Obviously, by knowing God's word, Romans 12, 1 and 2, you know this verse, many of you, that we're not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed 
by the renewing of our minds, that is, as our, we become God-centered mentally, as our minds begin to think God's thoughts after Him, we become to value His holiness and see its truth. And you see, increasingly, we're transformed by that. This is true. This is false. This is sin. This is godly. Begin to know that and begin to walk in that. Most certainly prayer. Paul has a wonderful prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. I preached it at Chris's wedding. Ephesians in chapter 3. That Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith permanently and as he does he comes in and transforms and remodels everything that's in us that we might be godly. And most assuredly, the fellowship of the church, the fellowship of the saints, the the fellowship of the body of Christ, we need one another to model godliness and holiness. We need each other to hold each other accountable. We need each other to discipline each other. We need each other to confess our sins to. Because the scripture says that we need to encourage one another daily so that none of us has a hardened heart. And then, of course, it comes by effort. It isn't automatic. There's always the great question, well, who does this work of holiness in us? Is it the Holy Spirit or is it us? And of course the answer to that question is, yes. Surely it's the Holy Spirit who is at work in us. But surely his work in us is to call us to pursue holiness. And the passages of scripture like in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 that tell us that we're to take off the old self and put on the new self. You have to understand that means effort and that's hard work. Because the patterns of those sins can be so deep in the context of our own lives. We've been so fooled by them to think that they satisfy. And they still pay off from time to time in the short run enough to where we rely upon them. And we have to continue to say no, that isn't right. And it's as if something is being stripped away from us. Even as something good is being added to us. But I want to leave you with this one. It's in 2 Corinthians in chapter 3 and verse 18. It's what I left my daughter with at her wedding. And the guy she married. <sighs> Keep forgetting about him. He's a great guy. We love him. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. The Apostle writes, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, Listen, look upon Jesus. Says, as you behold him, you will reflect him. As you behold him, as you think about him, as you meditate upon him, as you see his holiness. Now there's a sense in which a day will come and we will see him as he is. In his complete and other holiness unveiled before us. And now all we can do is think about it. Meditate upon it. Read of it. He says, but behold him. And that will be transforming. And you see, the Lord has given to us a way to behold Him, a way to view Him, a way to see Him. He gave this to us way before there was film. So that we needn't see it on camera. But this is His way. And He gave it to us 
by way of very common elements, bread and wine. Do you remember that on the night in which our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, This is my body which is given for you. Behold me. Remember me. Think upon me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to them. And he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. That is to say, Behold me. Think about me. Because you see, as we behold him, as we think about him, as we take of this bread and drink of this cup, he says we proclaim his death until he comes. And when he comes, he comes in majesty. And we see him and we're utterly transformed. He said, now use it now so that your faith may increase, so that you may better know my holiness and you will better reflect me and walk in me. Of course, this bread and juice is in Jesus. It's a symbol of his body and his blood. But yet, it's holy, set apart, devoted to God for the purpose of us feeding upon him, for the purpose of our beholding him, for the purpose of our faith growing as we meditate upon him, for our desire for holiness to increase, for our confidence to grow that a day will come. In fact, it may be tomorrow when we see us growing in holiness even more and even more and even more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray even now that you would take this bread and this juice, very common stuff. I pray that you'd set it apart so that it would be used by you to enable us by the eye of faith in our own hearts to behold the Lord Jesus. Because, Father, here we see the holy justice of God. We see here your hatred of sin and your wrath upon it. But we see, too, this holy love that you have for us. For rather than putting your wrath upon us, you put it upon your own Son. And so I pray that we would see your holiness, the very holiness of Jesus, even as we come to this table. And Father, as we do, I pray that you would use this bread and juice in a way that will enable us to more deeply trust in Christ, to more deeply hate sin, more deeply love holiness and that you would empower us as we meditate upon Jesus so as we think upon him and receive from him that you would empower us to walk in a way that's pleasing to you and this we pray in Jesus name Amen I remind you that this table is not the table of grace evangelical Presbyterian church but it's the table of the Lord and he invites to it all who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. That is, like Isaiah, you've stood before God and you have seen